Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. My name is C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I'm speaking to you from Southern California, and I am joined by my two very close friends. Hey, hi, this, intro. Hey, 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 hey y'all. Um, <laughs> this is Seth Rodney. I am an editor at Hyperallergic, the most excellent art blog imaginable. Uh, I'm also a part-time faculty member at Parsons School of Design, and I'm speaking to you from the Boogie Down Bronx, where it is chilly but sunny, and I'm grateful to be alive. And I am finally the third of this trio. I'm Stephen G. Fullwood, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Nomadic Archivist Project. And I am coming to you from Harlem, and Harlem is cold, but it's that cold spring cold where it's a little bit warm if you stand over Mm -hmm. here, a little bit cold if you stand over there. But overall, (laughs) it's like just a dusting of snow out to remind you that it's winter. Yeah, word. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that that intro reminded me a little bit of like Phil Hartman's uh, intro <laughs> from uh, from Groundhog Day it, when he oh. was like, "Their hearts and hearts." Was, that was very well said. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. I love that movie. Um, so uh, so today uh, we're continuing our conversation about white uh, supremacy construed broadly. Right, we, we take bring a lot of things into the topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. And today's specific topic is on the institutionalization of uh, what Stephen has brought into the conversation and references Ty Shaw. Is that is that where you? Yes, brought her name is Ty from? Shaw. So, a wonderful woman, a black woman, hate uh, Panamanian women in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. Okay, so in this institutional white misanthropy, um, and in the, the sort of the the ways that that institutionalization manifests, um, and I, I before we started the conversation, I, I had volunteered to jump in because um, Stephen reminded me of the topic uh, yesterday, and and I had uh, immediately something came to mind. And I'd be interested to see what you guys think of it. And then also, you know, just sort of where it goes. Uh, so the Jesse Smollett case. Right? Mm. Uh, so or not, I mean, I guess it will be a case at, mm. at some point. Well, it's a case already. Uh, yeah. 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 That, so, mm. yeah, I mean, we'll be a trial and, and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. And, God damn. Um, and, you know, we can, we can bracket. Although we can talk about, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the the danger that that or not the danger, but the, the harm that it does to actual legitimate uh, uh, advocacy for hate crimes, et cetera, or against hate crimes, I should say. Uh, I, what I'd like to do is to contextualize that story for a second and mm-hmm. say that using race, using white supremacy as a tool to manipulate uh, cultural opinions has a very deep history, and it has traditionally worked out way worse for people of color. Mm-hmm. So uh, Emmett Till is, of course, of the course. first. I mean, th- 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 this is an analogous example of a white woman that accused a young black man or a, black, a boy. I mean, I shouldn't call him a man. He was a boy. Yeah, he was a boy. Uh, he was 13 or 14? Yeah, I just, yeah. some. He was 14, I believe, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think 14 is right. Um and because of that accusation, he was murdered horrendously, awfully, terribly, horribly. Mm-hmm. And so this this woman used a narrative of white supremacy 
to have sort of a mob mentality unleashed mm-hmm. on on this boy. Of course, it was a turning point in the civil rights movement in, in the United States, but it had been going on for a very, very, very... Oh, yes. There just aren't enough varies in there. Mm-hmm. L- long time, long mm-hmm. time, right? Mm-hmm. This is a very... There's a deep history here. So people using a narrative of white supremacy on either side of it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is what this is what individuals with cultural power do mm-hmm. is they use the accepted narratives to work their way, right? Mm-hmm. To to make their will manifest in the world, whatever mm-hmm. that happens to be. Mm-hmm. And now we have we we are at a point in history where we have an example of it working on the flip side in in the in the most let's just be honest in the most insignificant of ways comparatively speaking mm-hmm. to its mm-hmm. its longer history right i mean so this guy gets fired from empire you know maybe maybe there's you know there there's some consequences for him some minor consequences and maybe some larger consequences for the culture at large mm-hmm. um but but nothing compared to the existential threat that was using this narrative for hundreds of years in the right. United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to see what you guys thought of that example, what your feelings were about it in general, how institution, how the institutionalization of this manifests itself and has manifested itself at various points in time. Um, yeah, so please just jump in and, and or take it in another direction if you like, but that was just the, the thing that occurred to me. Seth Rodney, come on, what you got? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I was going to defer to you, Stephen, because I think I'm still um, processing. Um, it's kind of a surprise question, but then it really shouldn't be. I have to say that when I first read about the controversy, and it unfolded over the matter of a few days, almost almost weeks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my my initial response was, "Oh yeah, that that's not surprising that this happened to this person. Um, it's not surprising." Uh, it was a little weird. I thought. The noose thing seemed a bit, I don't know. A little on the nose. Yeah, a little, a little no. off. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty nine-year-old. Yeah, pretty it was nine-year-old pretty, description, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's also overdetermined, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's not enough to call someone, I mean, I'm reminded of that 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 silly skit that, um, what's his name from Atlanta, um, has the name of the older actor, Danny. Oh, Cecil um, Glover, um, Donald Glover. Yes. Yeah, Donald Glover, thank you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have seen this skit. I I have to say, and this is at least partly due to me me be, me having been raised in the United States, essentially, that I find it hilariously funny. It's a it's a skit where they they're doing a spelling bee, and Donald Glover is one of the people giving the words to this the mm-hmm. the students to spell, mm-hmm. and he and he and he without breaking character in all seriousness says, "Nigger faggot." And then he uses it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, then the white kids on stage are like, ah, uh, ah, uh, can you um, tell me like a sentence? Like, I don't know. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, look at that nigger faggot over there. <laughs> so, word, I mean, it was kind of like that. It's like, you add the noose and it's like, it's not just like nigger, it's not just faggot, it's like nigger faggot, right? It's, it's, like it's really <laughs> overdetermined how much you hate this man um, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But, um, because yeah. of it, like the sort of obvious valences of his, of his social being. Okay, so when I unfolded that he likely 
made it up. And I think his lawyers are still insisting that he hasn't. Yes, they are. Um, he's but it seems that he's like innocent. Mm-hmm. yeah, come on. Right. But <laughs> right. But all, most of the, the preponderance of evidence points to the, to um, to him having done exactly that. Mm-hmm. I felt, and I suppose now feel, I feel precarious. I feel like every single instance in which that narrative is used to lever up our outrage, our anguish about another black person being victimized, that it's another moment when it begins to feel like that's all we can bring to the table. Like all we can Mm. bring to the table is anger and and anguish Mm. and outrage, which is this sort of, you know, the version of the pitchforks and torches coming out for people, right? Mm-hmm. Except we tend to do it verbally on social media platforms. I, at least, I, I, let me own that. I tend to, mm-hmm. to that one of my, my, main, my main outlets, I'm a writer. I mm-hmm. tends to be the social media platforms and, and the things I write for um, Hyperallergic and other publications. Mm-hmm. That said, I was also helpfully reminded by Charles Blow that the counter-narrative, which is that Oh, look, another black person is using playing the race card with respect to this white supremacy narrative in a false way, right? Where, um, he said that's a racist argument. If you, if they expect, if you expect you to be responsible for what another black person has done or that you see that as a reflection on the quote unquote race, that's silly. That's the definition of racism. Justice Smollett has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which the white supremacist narrative, the thing that can undo it, is precisely the notion that a black person cannot stand in for black people, mm-hmm. right? The synecdoche does not work. It is mm-hmm. false. There is no one black person that stands in for the group. And to assume that that happens is silly. The problem, though, is that that's kind of what goes into our understanding of what constitutes white supremacy. So this is the problem, right? Because yes. we recognize that every time someone does an institution, mm-hmm. um, oppresses, uh, exploits a black person, we feel it has been done to black people. So, and that white people are the ones doing it, right? So we, so that's a problem, and I, yes. I just, I just talked myself into this corner, and I'm not sure how to get out. It's okay. I'm gonna help you out here. Um, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna offer some space, I guess. And so, where I thought you were going, Seth, initially was mm-hmm. what people have been saying all along now that Jesse Smaller has lied. That means every time somebody brings a case up and says, yes, I've been um, abused and I was, I, was, um, I was attacked, blah, blah, blah. That means it's going to cast suspicion on that person, right? Are you lying? I'm like, the bar is so fucking low for people mm-hmm. who have been attacked and are trying to explain their cases to, some peop- to the police or whomever else. And, and not to mention, what were you doing out there? What were you wearing? Are you trans? What are you supposed to, you know, it, they be, mm-hmm. it, it, immediately mm-hmm. suspicion is brought upon them. All the mm-hmm. trans men and women who have been killed just this year mm. won't get a tenth of the um, the press that surrounds mm-hmm. someone like Jesse Smollett. Mm-hmm. To go back to mm-hmm. what Travis said, though, I wanted to mention, I wanted to um, say something about this idea 
where he, the tropes of white misanthropy is a really interesting one because so many people believed it was confirmation bias. Mm. However, in my mm. circles with other people, I remember I was like, oh, that happened to him. That's really sad. But then I read the story and I said, like, overdetermined. It was like, hey, Empire nigger, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then he saw one and then another one uh. beat him up and he had on a mask, but he could see pink through that. Right. No, 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 no. It just right. sounded way too labored, mm-hmm. way too. So you, you did. You were suspicious from the beginning. From the beginning. I mean, from. Ah, okay. And That's I so I don't think that it's not a black and white issue. It's very nuanced in terms of how people responded to it, at least on social media. Mm. There may mm-hmm. have been that barrage of people who were like, you know, justice for su- justice for Jesse, <laughs> mm-hmm. Jesse mm-hmm. for justice, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't mm-hmm. pass the smell test. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who should remain nameless is a reporter, and he wrote on Facebook what he felt about it. He says these things simply don't add up. I've read a lot mm-hmm. about it. I've listened to Smollett, and they just don't seem to add up. Mm. And people went after him because what they were, what they, what some people came after him, and I thought it was interesting because they said, first you believe somebody, you give them compassion, and mm. if you have doubts, then you keep them, you don't broadcast them. But you I, keep them in reserve. You keep them reserve. And I actually mm-hmm. have a friend who signed a find out what happened to Jesse Smollett kind of, you know, online petition, but mm-hmm. refused to post it on his Facebook page because he was like he had doubts. So mm. I think. I think your thinking person, black, white, green, blue, whatever, was kind of like, I'm not sure about this. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a really good example of, and I do believe he made everything up. I don't mm. buy that yeah. the Chicago police are on our side by any manner, shape, or form. Mm. Um, and so it's such a nuanced case of mm-hmm. using white misanthropy to bring attention in a very charged environment. It's always a charged environment, no matter who's in office, but Trump elevates mm. this. Mm-hmm. And the hate groups and the Republicans who refuse to hold them accountable. It's an it's that moment where people want to believe this is right and that's wrong. Mm-hmm. When it's like Jesse for me, I I remember asking someone, like, is he that popular? Like, <laughs> do people know him? You know, there's some really dedicated white misanthropes walking around Chicago at 2 a.m. in the morning <laughs> with bleach and nooses. I just did not buy it. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. I just can't seem... I, I was like, hats so, off to you guys. Mega hats off to you guys if it happened. But no, mm, I just didn't so, buy it. So when I, when I, hear, when I hear both of you, I, I feel like both of those things are true. I feel like Seth's corner that he sort of uncomfortably led himself <laughs> with, with, with his line of argumentation mm-hmm. or sort of thinking out loud about it. I think that's right. And I think what you said, Stephen, basically supports that, right? So, I mm-hmm. mean, you, you, what you're really saying is that that these racialized stories about intent and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, victimhood and persecution or whatever, on both sides of it, right? So the ones persecuting and the ones being persecuted mm-hmm. are are largely inadequate to the reality of 21st century America. And I, you know, and the thing that I, you know, another sort of topical thing that where I would say, like, we're just so flat footed about how we talk about the institutional problems, mm. which in part because the, the real problems are really hard and really difficult to deal with, right? Mm. You know, how do we actually, so I just came back from a conference in Memphis, right, mm-hmm. where it's a 50% poverty rate yeah. amongst black Americans in Memphis. It's like, so it's like, the, it's worse than Detroit. Jesus. And let's talk about that for a second, because what we are doing here 
is the reason why these stories have currency, the reason why Jesse Smollett's story for me had so much currency, not truth, but currency mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. with other people, was that because we're talking about a culture that has suppressed and continues to suppress its discriminatory practices and outright violence towards people of African descent. That's right. what so, we're talking about well, here. So the reason why Jesse stands in for some people is because justice was never done for those gillions of motherfuckers that have experienced this and continue right. okay, to. Okay, so... so- Okay, so no, that's let, right. let me let me let me jump in. I, mm-hmm. I I'm with you. I'm with you all the way up to uh, <laughs> up to the, the phrasing of it being done mm-hmm. currently. I just want to nuance it. I don't want oh, to say that it, sure. uh, it's a, it's a, which is that what what's happening what i mean memphis is like the slave holdingest of the slave holding cities like it's a whole it was a whole made up slave market like with this like egyptian name like it is like the absolute i mean nearly sort of like the quintessence mm-hmm. of white supremacy in its history mm-hmm. and and it's that history that gives us the world that we have today and that our our completely inadequate historical consciousness in America prepares us to confront and deal with. Mm-hmm. It is it is it is probably the case today that the institutions that as they are as they are worked and navigated and moved through mm-hmm. are not as structurally uh, resistant to non so people that i that are not would be quote unquote white it's so i it's so clunky the way i'm talking about it but mm-hmm. but 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 to say that what we look at today in memphis what we look at today in chicago what we look at today in detroit in the other parts of the country is is the legacy of a system that has never been properly addressed ever at any point mm-hmm. and 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 that that in fact it's not white supremacy it's not maga hats and nooses and it's none of that, that that's the real issue the real issue is that we are not committed structurally or institutionally in this country to redressing the poverty that we inflicted on the African dia- the Africans of the African diaspora, mm-hmm. and and that requires a massive uh, investment in infrastructure, a massive investment in uh, NGOs in these areas. I mean, it, it, I mean, there are things that can be done. It, it, oh it, no, of it, it, there, there are there are literally policies that could be enacted. Dude, the poor people's and campaign. There are a bunch of different things that people have tried mm-hmm. to initiate. Yeah, absolutely. And that are that's are really, really, really hard. They're really hard. Well, you've they're got difficult. you've mm-hmm. you've got you've got fully entrenched interests that aren't about white supremacy. That are just about run of the mill human narcissism. Uh, and 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 okay, this is okay. I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that white I'm not saying that white supremacy or uh, white misanthropy is gone. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying its effect on the system is smaller than the other cumulative structural effects that are keeping people of color impoverished in this country. And mm. to our next um, next podcast episode, how it keeps whites really disenfranchised. Mm. And what white misanthropy actually does to whites. So stay tuned mm. for that, listeners. We're okay. going to be talking about that. Right. So let me, <laughs> let me address this because I want to make sure I understand you, Travis. Because that's a brick-heavy argument. What you're saying is that and I'm going to use, I'm going to try to use concrete historical examples. You're saying that there's a kind of inability 
or resistance to addressing the systematic disenfranchisement. Dis, dis, yes, disenfranchisement of people of the Af- African diaspora in the U.S. because there's more energy and more attention paid to essentially making money. So things like the Enron scandal, things like the Iran-Contra affair, mm-hmm. th- um, mm-hmm. those are moments where what people are, what's, what's been mobilized is a lot of human capital in order to make money, right? Mm-hmm. And, in order, mm-hmm. and in order to um, push forward a certain political agenda. I'm thinking the Iran-Contra affair. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things you're saying actually cumulatively, though that those kinds of um concerns, political agendas, and essentially, you know, uh, and Trump is a spectacular example of this, this sort of institutionalized greed, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the, the the willing exploitation of people in order to make money off them. Amway is also a perfect example of this, right? And where which is where Betsy DeVos made um her fortune. So, <laughs> so those things, right? Those that that kind of that kind of attention, that kind of concern, you're saying, altogether, tends to weigh more or garner more attention and human capital than suppr- than actively suppressing people of the African diaspora. Because you're saying that on yes. the list of things to kind of get done for, some, for a lot of people, like suppressing African people is like lower on the list, right? Like mm-hmm. it's like third or fourth or fifth. They're like- That's we, right. It's we, an ingredient. It's right. just not the main ingredient. Right. So-, so, so It's saffron or whatever. At the, right, you know, right, in, right. In the, in the so, so, um, <laughs> and, and the kind of mobilization of collective institutional and structural powers to address that, disfran- that historical disfranchisement, I'm thinking would have to be at the level of a kind of like FEMA intervention, right? Where like mm. you pour, literally pour millions of dollars into policies and programs that you know work, right? Like micro-lending or... Um, mm. um, yeah, more, more, a more great ex- example. Right, or more, more equitable, more equitable um, allocation of assets for school districts, right? Because we know now that white districts tend to get millions more dollars than That's right, because than of property school- values. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And, 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 and then to, 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 be su- to be super specific and then kick it to Stephen. Right. Like Memphis, for example, at this conference, one of the, a Memphian or whatever, the, the, I guess that's what they call themselves, mm. was talking, and mm. I don't recall the percentage. I believe he knew when he was detailing the situation, but it was, it was again, mm. one of the top in the United States, uh, surpassing New York. Mm. Most homes in Memphis are not owned by people that live in Memphis. They're investment mm. properties yeah, that are owned by people you know, spread, spread out across the world. And mm. so you have this kind of fungibility of capital. Mm. That's a structural issue yes. that you could actually, that has nothing really to do with Africans or people of African descent, right? It really doesn't have anything. No, no, wait, 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 wait Steve, let me, let me jump uh, in. I'm just looking Today, at you. <laughs> in, in 2019, that choice is not being made because they want to disenfranchise the blacks in Memphis, right? Because that's it's it's a a large part of the community. It's the effect 
right? It's the effect of a historical reality, which was that at one point in time. Right. But now it means that you have to tell like Ma and Pa Australian, 60-something Australian, that their mutual fund investment in Memphis for their rental property, which helps pay for their agroponic garden, that they can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a hard, that's a much harder, more intractable problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we shouldn't address that problem. I'm saying we should get off the stick and start trying to address those problems. Mm. Um, and and things like Smollett in, in all the raging, and, so, and this is my period at the end, the, and all <laughs> the raging on social media and, and in the media, like in the more elevated media, mm-hmm. only detracts from the real problem, mm. which is this structural impediment to redistributing a historical wealth that was built on the backs of murdered and enslaved uh, peoples of African descent. Mm. Wonderful period. Um, Mm. I'm going to come back to a few things you said, but I really Mm. appreciate your kicking it off to me as you talk about the property investments in Memphis, because Mm -hmm. the example that I had, I have for institution institutional white misanthropy deals with a case of reparations. And this is an mm-hmm. article by Tanahasi Coates, and he actually, mm-hmm. interesting enough, this. Smollett, yes. Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure mm-hmm. you guys have read it before. I think we referred mm-hmm. to I it. I have indeed. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who, through their lifetimes, have been disenfranchised by right. institutional racism. Right. Whether it's Clyde Ross, uh, the story basically follows Clyde Ross, who was born in 1923 in um, Mississippi. And mm-hmm. that... His, he was he was young enough to remember that his father had been told that he owned three thousand dollars in a tax in back taxes, so everything was seized the farm, all the mm. animals, and so forth, and they were reduced to being sharecroppers. You mm. jump ahead to nineteen i believe nineteen sixty one and uh Clyde Ross and his wife bought a house in North Lawndale, which was you know Chicago's west side and had been largely been a Jewish neighborhood, so he bought a house. And did not know that he did not own the house. Mm-hmm. And the equity he was putting into the house, the money he was putting in, he was not going to benefit from it because someone had, he was um, illiterate. He didn't know what he was signing oh, and no. tried throughout his life to get it fixed, but he couldn't. And so <sighs> the sort of lending predatory practices that people did, even when you were trying to do this in a racial neighborhood thing, these kinds of, um, these kinds of examples pop up as institutional mm-hmm. redlining. You know, banks not loaning people money. And even there's a quote from it that I thought was really interesting from a book um, called Black Wealth, White Wealth by Melvin Oliver and Thomas M. Shapiro, where mm. they say, locked out of the greatest mass opportunity for wealth accumulation in American history, mm. African-Americans who desired and were able to afford home ownership found themselves consigned to central city communities where their investments were affected by the self-fulfilling prophecies of the FHA appraisers. Cut off from sources of new investment, their homes and communities deteriorated and lost value in comparison to those homes and communities that FHA appraises deemed desirable. Mm-hmm. And so going back to your point about the money part of it and the ego part of it and the selfishness part of it, absolutely. Absolutely. Race. So when Morrison said, Tony Morrison said that the race is the least reliable piece of information you have about somebody. She was referring to her, her I think, sixth novel, Paradise. It might have been her sixth. Mm-hmm. Sixth or seventh. Seventh. Seventh, as a matter of fact. And so what I think I agree with is that it can be a distraction 
mm. rather than to really address the systemic, really deep, painful things that look into our human soul and say, do we really believe that we are better <laughs> than other people? Mm. Like, that's just too hard. That's just too hard because it means, a really, I, it, I think it might upend everybody's sort of like, you know, mental it, the brain would explode. There's just not enough RAM to understand how we feed into a system <laughs> Great analogy. That, yeah. that undermines our humanity in really sinister mm. ways and terrible ways and has for years and continues uh, to. So in that can, way, can I do I, agree with you. Can I add something to what you said before I leave it? I'd probably give, maybe we can give Seth the last word since we're, we're coming up on 30, which is, um, so, which is that I, complete agreement uh, with, an, with an addendum mm-hmm. that, uh, I, I actually believe that if you were to press someone like Steven Pinker mm-hmm. um, or kind of the, these, maybe Sam Harris, even um, th- these people that are sort of the the um, the forward guard of uh, kind of the narrative of, of optimism, which, to be fair, I think is a conversation to have. I'm not I'm not a pessimist. And I think that there's there's good conversations oh, yeah. to be have around about around progress. But. I, I really do feel like if you were to press them into a corner and and you could get a, a true response out of them, that mm-hmm. they would say on balance, things worked out better for Africans, uh, African-Americans, Africans that were forced into slavery, that helped build America. That That is the argument that you are left with when you want to be a booster for progress in the way that they are that in the way that they are they boosters understand. for it. Oh, the that, way they no, understand progress. Is what yeah, you mean? to say that 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 black peoples are better off having been forced to come to America ultimately. Oh, that boring ass <sighs> argument. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Damn. I, 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 and I believe like but so it is a it's a stupid argument, but it's a feeling. Right. Mm. It's a feeling. And I, I really do think mm. that amongst most people mm. that is that is actually a core belief that they would say, oh, it's horrible. It's terrible. All these things are awful. Yeah, but but, but their lens are pretty dirty. And also they've been fed and educated in a way that doesn't even allow them to imagine what other kinds of life existed outside of this year. That's precisely right. Yeah, it's pretty pretty easy. So that's that's the bankrupt position to take. So let let me try to tie some things together. What I think in the last exchange you had, um, Travis and Stephen, uh, and I, I think what ha- what fell out of that last exchange for me was that Stephen was saying, "Yes, this is true." Um, at the same time, while a lot of energy and capital has been used essentially um, in the service of making money off of, uh, and whether whether or not that money gets made through exploiting other people is sort of neither here nor there for the people who are making money. Typically, it does exploit other people. It typically, it does oppress other people. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but the, the aim is, um, again, political agenda is making money um, or making money first and political agenda is perhaps secondary. Um, you know, and making money includes like, you know, individual money and also keeping family wealth. What Stephen has added to that is, uh, is, is to essentially say post-World War II, in the U.S., black people were systematically cut out of the one, and this is the, the argument that Coates make, right? That mm-hmm. black people were systematically cut out of the one shining example, exemplary way of making and holding wealth in the family. That is mm-hmm. property, right? Mm-hmm. Owning property that would essentially increase in value 
over the years. So what I hear is, on the one hand, yes, there's a long history in which though the energy that has been mobilized structurally and institutionally has um, in, in largely in the U.S. is um, has been specifically geared towards, to say it in the crudest way, keeping black people down, right? Mm-hmm. To keeping keeping them poor, keeping them disenfranchised, keeping them disempowered. But you're also, but we're also concluding that at some point, this sort of like second stage rocket leaves its leaves the um, leaves <laughs> the uh, the 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 um, satellite. Yeah. Um, and we start thinking less and less about black people and keeping them down. And we think more and more in terms of like these abstracted ways of making money, i.e. Enron, right? Like how, how much can it, or the savings and loans crisis, like how much can it hurt if we just like, you know, allow people to take out as much money as they want in equity in their house. And <laughs> they can just, you know, pay it back. And then we'll make these like very complicated tranches of these debt, of these collateralized debt obligations and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it gets abstracted abstracted, abstracted, until we actually start to lose sight of these people of African descent Mm. and what what has historically been done to make sure that they have, um, that they are kept poor, right? Mm. Um, So uh, what I'm saying essentially is that from the conversation I am taking that we are, uh, this is precisely part of the dilemma around white misanthropy, right? In that Historically, it is rooted in disfranchising those black people over there. Like, the, like you could in the 1960s, you could ha- you could have a white family point, right? Like they pointed at Emmett Till and say that one there, he did that, he's bad, go get him. But since then, we become less and less able on both sides, right? Less and less able to point to particular people because mm-hmm. the means of wealth accumulation. Right, becomes so abstracted that yeah. it's not like you can say those white people over there or or those black people over there are the ones that offended me or those right. So part of our problem is that we don't we haven't figured out the language by which to talk about that institutionalized, that systematized way of making money off the backs of other people, exploiting mm. other people. Right, we want to yes. recruit it into a racial, yeah. a racialized um, discourse, but it actually slightly sits outside it. Right, like mm-hmm. it began there, but it's not there anymore. So that's mm-hmm. partly our dilemma. I think that mm-hmm. part of that dilemma, Seth and Travis, is because we still people who are the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poorest, intergenerational poverty, undereducated, and so forth, still believe that one day they could be a millionaire or one day yeah. they could be rich. Yeah. And I think that that yeah. clouds, that's just an ingredient of, I think, what stops mm-hmm. people from actually seeing or wanting to believe or wanting to really do the intellectual work or the heart work around yeah. that particular thing, that people want mm-hmm. to be rich because that's the best dream that they have. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Just poor, I mean, poor I, people, a lot of people, but yeah, I think yeah. that that's the largest group. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's a a, a fantastic summary of of the discussion, Seth. I, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I it's one of the reasons that I'm not that bullish on Bernie Sanders. So everyone talks about how radical mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders is. I am actually entirely in favor of reparations. I don't mm-hmm. think you can necessarily. I don't think you can just hand out a check 
to, I mean, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do it, no. But, but, but there are some very well thought out, smart plans about of how course. to go. But I am, I am entirely, if you, if you want to, you, you can't, you know, for, as far as the economics go in the United States, I'm not talking about globally, but in mm. the United States, you cannot disentangle race from, from economics. Oh, not right. yet. Maybe in 200 years, maybe in 300 years, if we did the right things, but you right. can't do it today. And so that, right. I, that's why, you know, the Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders thing, like it, it, in the United States, if you want to redress income inequality, which is a serious problem and it needs to be redressed, race has to be part of that discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and reparations have to be a part of that discussion. Oh, Otherwise, you're not serious about it in the United States. And right. so that's why I'm, I'm, just not, I'm just not that bullish on him. So I'm sorry. I think Steven, Bernie but... Sanders and others basically feel like you're just giving people what you said, a check. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, no, it's much more in-depth than that. We're talking about better schools. We're talking about better neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. We're talking about That's right. a clear path to success in this That's culture right, yeah. where capitalism is regulated. This is what mm-hmm. we're talking Listen about. That, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. that's, a, that's a good place to stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, we're well over. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Seth, Travis. No, uh, thank you all for that discussion. That was really illuminating. Was I really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was wonderful. Until, uh, until next week. Definitely. Definitely.